Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis, and glad to have you here with me. So our topic today has to do with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, without question the most famous kidnapping in American history. But our story isn't so much about the kidnapping itself, but instead about a man and a piece of vital evidence that would end up being pivotal in the trial of Bruno Hauptmann. My guest is Adam Schrager. He's an investigative journalist with WISC-TV in Madison, Wisconsin, and also author of The 16th Rail, The Evidence, The Scientist, and The Lindbergh Kidnapping. So great to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I'd, I'd love to, to know how you came about writing this book. But first, would you help me pronounce his last name? It's actually Arthur Kaler, um, and that's one of the reasons. No one ever knew who this guy was, and I was, I guess, one of those kind of true crime geeks when I was growing up. I always had a book about the FBI, it felt like, from when I was about seven until I was about 12, and had read about all of these various different cases. And one day when I was working at Wisconsin Public Television before my current job, uh, we had a tip come into the newsroom that the latter that was used in the Lindbergh kidnapping case was at the Forest Products Laboratory, which is located just west of the University of Wisconsin. And for folks who don't know, the Forest Products Laboratory was and remains the preeminent wood science facility in the world. They study everything right now from the wood you should use in your baseball bats so they don't splinter to the wood uh, best designed to try and fight off a hurricane and deal with a hurricane. But when I heard that the, the latter was there, I was intrigued. I was wondering if they. I was wondering if they were doing something like carbon testing to actually prove. Because I, I had remembered all of the speculation in this case, all of the the questions about whether there were multiple people involved, not just Bruno Hauptman. And so I called over there, and like so many uh, tips that come into a newsroom, um, that one turned out to be false. They actually had a replica of the ladder there. Um, but in the process, I learned about Arthur Kaler, and I, I, not many people um, get written up by the New York Times as the Sherlock Holmes in the witness box. And Arthur Kaler was the final prosecution witness in the crime of the century. And I wondered why had no one ever shared his story before. So who was Arthur Kaler and what was his background and, and how did he get involved in a, in a field like this? So Arthur Kaler grew up in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which is a, a city kind of off Lake Michigan. And he basically, it, it was a farm. His dad cultivated bees. He was always tinkering. And the only time he wasn't allowed to be out in nature and using tools in any way was, was on Sundays out of respect for their religious neighbors. He ends up going to the University of Michigan where he gets a degree in forestry. And he joins, he, he applies for a position at the Forest Service for a xylotomist, and for folks whose Greek is not particularly good, a xylotomist literally translated as a cutter of wood. And the position 
that was posted on July 10th, 1912, basically asked for somebody saying this report may include results of some original investigation on the part of the applicant. But the Forest Service ended up having to explain what this job meant to people. For Arthur Kaler, it was pretty well known. It was pretty obvious. He was going to be there designing and or, or rather just trying to understand the species that were being cultivated throughout the world and throughout the United States. There were two million people in the United States who were employed in the wood industry in the 20s and 30s in this country. So he ends up going into this facility. And Arthur Kaler, it's not hyperbole to say 10 years after he gets to the Forest Products Laboratory, literally writes the book on wood. He, he authors the properties and uses of wood that's released in 1924. It's translated into multiple different languages. It's published by McGraw-Hill both in their New York imprint as well as their London imprint. He becomes the world expert in, if you want to know what kind of wood is being used for anything, you sent it back in the 1920s, 1930s to the Forest Products Laboratory, and the guy it was sent to, the guy who actually looked at it under the microscopes, measured it with the calipers and whatnot, was Arthur Kaler. As far back as 1922, Kaler was using his expertise to solve crimes. Could you talk about the incident at the Chapman Farm and the role he played in solving that? So he ends up using um, his expertise. A bomb had been planted, had been mailed to an individual, and this turned out to be a, a dispute over water rights uh, in Wisconsin, in a small county in Wisconsin in the 1920s. And the way Arthur Kaler was able to help solve this crime was the bomb had been sent in a crate. He's able to distinguish what kind of wood that crate was made out of, ends up tracking back the, the, the shavings from the bomb casing itself to this individual who was a suspect at the time, and they end up finding shavings that match that crate in this individual's barn, and therefore he solves the crime. I, I mean, when you think about kind of the technology that was used, even in, it's 1922, that's the kind of thing that you'd see featured on an episode of CSI today. Yeah, for sure. Pretty incredible stuff. Without question. And I, I think for, for years and leading up to the situation that he found himself involved with, with the, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case, he was always fighting for, respectability. I don't think this was even seen necessarily as a science, except in the U.S. Forest Service and the small world in which he, he lived in. So let's go to Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator. For people out there who have never heard of him, please pause this interview and go read about him before continuing to listen to this. So Charles Lindbergh spends some of his early life in Wisconsin and actually has a couple of connections to Arthur Kaler. In Madison, can you, can you talk about those connections? Yeah, interestingly enough, when Arthur Kaler is receiving his master's degree from the University of Wisconsin, Charles Lindbergh is being honored on the same stage, um, and they lived somewhat close to each other. When Lindbergh, um, what was a student here, uh, he was here for a year or so before he ends up kind of basically leaving um, because his grades aren't particularly good. He doesn't find academics necessarily suit his personality. Um, but there's some weird kind of similarities in, in the paths that they would walk. And there's no evidence that either one of them ever had encountered one another before they end up working professionally, if you will, on this case in the mid-1930s, the early to mid-1930s. And yet they have these kind of weird situations where in theory they're walking the same streets. Arthur Kaler is on his way to work and Charles Lindbergh is on his way to school. You would think they would have crossed paths at one point or another, but there's no evidence to actually show that they acknowledged one another before 1934. Let's talk about the, the Lindbergh abduction. Could you talk about the night of March 1st, 1932? How was the, the baby discovered missing? So the March 1st, 1932, it, it, this, to put it into perspective, Charles Lindbergh, I don't know that we have a modern day equivalent to what Charles Lindbergh meant, not just to this country, but to the world. Um, I, I mean, somebody had mentioned to me, you know, it, the Pope, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, you take all of these figures, combine their popularity, and I'm still not sure you really get to the level 
that Charles Lindbergh was at in this country and in the world in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. So when Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. is born uh, on his, on on the birthday of his mother, Ann Morrow Lindbergh, he becomes the world's baby. I mean, it's a seven and a half pound instant celebrity from the time that he's born on June 22nd, 1930. And the wire services are reporting everything from a change in a nursemaid. Is he drinking juice with breakfast or is he drinking milk with breakfast? I mean, it's as if he was the heir to the throne, except there was no throne for him to ascend to. And so on March 1st, um, at the Hopewell Estate, this is the Lindbergh uh, Vacation Estate in Hopewell, New Jersey, just outside of Trenton, New Jersey. Um, Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. is kidnapped from the second floor nursery. And there are three things that are left at the kidnapping scene. There's a ransom note, there's a chisel, and there's a homemade ladder. And when the it, it, there has been much criticism throughout the years of how the New Jersey State Police, which was the agency that was tasked with responding to this crime and initially investigating it, basically the public overran the crime scene. There were people who came out to this estate to see what had happened, so footprints were quickly wiped away. Um, fingerprints were sullied because the media, the public, everybody came to this area. Um, when it comes out into the newspapers on March 2nd, 1932, I mean, the world is shocked. It's, it's front page news. It's banner headline news in every single newspaper around the world. And the connection to Arthur Kaler on March 2nd, he has his copy of the Wisconsin State Journal, the local newspaper here in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and he's looking at it. And he looks across his kitchen table at his son, George who's only 48 days older than Charles Jr., and he later would tell the Saturday Evening Post, I, I looked across the breakfast table at my smallest child, a baby son, and I suppose I shuddered. But it, it's, it's his reaction and what he did next that I think is why you've contacted me to actually talk about his story on this podcast. Absolutely. And let's just step back for a moment, if you don't mind, and talk a bit more about how things unfolded on the night of the abduction. It was a quiet evening, was it not? Yeah, they, they weren't even expected there. Um, they were they were expected back in New York City at the time. So, I, I mean, Lindbergh himself, his wife, they are in the library on the first floor when this kidnapping takes place. Um, it was a wet night out, and yet there's always been these questions of, was there somebody on the inside who helped tip off the kidnapper to come, and, and how did they not hear? Um, I, I mean, all sorts of, this has been the single most reported crime, most reported story in 80 plus years. I mean, there's been no angle unturned on this. It seems every five or 10 years, there's a new angle on the investigation, somebody with a new theory as to how this kidnapping happened. Um, but it's fascinating. I mean, a, a kidnapper put a ladder up against a house, climbed up that ladder, used a chisel to break into the window of the nursery, took out a 22-month old child. Um, no one heard the baby scream, um, leaves a ransom note, climbs back down the ladder and disappears. So as you mentioned, the crime scene is chaotic and the lives of the Lindbergh family are equally so as people from around the country offer their help. And interestingly enough, Eric, one of those people who, who says he did contact the Lindberghs was Arthur Kaler. He, he said he wrote them a letter immediately afterwards when he read that a homemade ladder had been left behind by the person who committed the crime. He said, I grew excited. Um, the ladder, because it was made of wood, seemed just like a daring challenge. And he said he wrote to Lindbergh, um, I, I might not, I might be, it might be possible to actually trace this ladder until the wood matched up with other wood so as to compromise uh, the individuals involved. He, and, and he says that he wrote him, he said, I'm no Sherlock Holmes, but I've specialized in the study of wood. Just as a doctor who devotes himself to stomachs or tonsils or human vertebrae narrows down his interest to a sharp focus on the single field of his pet passion, so I, a forester, have done with wood. There's never in any indication that Lindbergh acknowledged that letter, got that letter, responded to that letter. And in fact, it takes Arthur Kaler nearly a year before he's finally brought into this case. So the family gets the ransom note asking for $50,000. They pay it, but despite their willingness to do whatever it takes to get Charles Jr. back, the baby's body is discovered, 
decomposing in a ditch not far from the house just weeks after the kidnapping. The case goes from being a kidnapping to murder. How do the the police progress in the investigation from there? The leads are basically dwindling. The police are hitting roadblock after roadblock. The public is in an uproar. I mean, if you can, there are there are um, posters being hung on telephone poles from San Francisco to New York. The idea that the world's baby could be kidnapped basically struck fear in every parent in this country. If you talk to anybody who's now probably in their 80s or, or late 80s, middle to late 80s, they'll tell you that their parents didn't let their kids go outside for a long period of time because people were simply scared and terrified as to what might happen to their kid. Um, the newsreels at the theaters that summer, you know, proclaimed there can be no immunity now. It's up to America to find the perpetrator of this crime or it's to be America's shame forever. Um, interestingly enough, at the time, the, the head of the New Jersey State Police uh, was Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf. And we obviously know that name more recently. His son is the one who who obviously led uh, American forces into Desert Storm. But at the time, in the summer of 1932, as they are running into roadblock after roadblock, he told reporters, he said, you know, if, uh, if the kidnapper came into the room and told me, told me point blank that he had kidnapped this baby, I would have no case against him. He said there are no fingerprints, nothing that would directly connect any individual with this crime. And what they were counting on w- was circumstantial evidence. They, they said they had scores of circumstances, which they're going to seek um, to fit with the circumstances in the life of the man that we end up finding with that ransom money. The Lindberghs end up paying a $50,000 ransom. And Schwarzkopf told reporters, look, if these things connect 50, 60 percent, we're going to end up sending that man to the chair. So Schwarzkopf, as you just mentioned, doesn't have much for physical evidence and needs help. He's feeling tremendous pressure by powerful people to get this solved. Correct. Um, Kaler doesn't come into the picture until a year or so after the kidnapping. So what were the police doing in the meantime to move the investigation forward? So what they were doing primarily in that first number of months is they're chasing the ransom money. So there's an FBI agent who actually tracks where all of these bills show up. They, they were they were phasing out the gold standard at the time. So the, the money that is paid in the ransom, the smartest thing they did is they marked that money. And so they actually wrote down um, the, the sequence numbers, the, the ID numbers for all of these bills. And interestingly enough, just as a total aside, the guy, the FBI agent who ends up working on the ransom note and the ransom part of this is the individual who ends up going and helping catch Al Capone for, for IRS violations as well. Um, and then they start tracking where this money is appearing. And so they've got a map of the, the boroughs of New York, and there's a pushpin in for every place that one of these these uh, ransom bills turns up and, and they're it's beyond tedious. I mean, anyone who claims that the authorities in this case, be it the New York City police, the New Jersey State Police or the FBI, did not do exhaustive police work looking into this, have never visited the New Jersey State Police Museum and actually looked at the hundreds of thousands of pages that were generated from the investigation on this. They tried. They exhausted as every angle you could possibly conceive of, they were just hitting dead end after dead end. And then finally, in January of 1933, so you're looking at nine months after this, they finally figure, well, what are we going to do with this ladder? Maybe this ladder can provide some clues to us. And so basically what they do is they contact the FBI, contact the New Jersey State Police asks the FBI for help. The FBI turns to the Forest Service. The Forest Service turns to the Forest Products Laboratory. And the Forest Products Laboratory turns to the guy who literally wrote the book on wood. And that's how Arthur Kaler gets into this case. So from reading your book, there seems to be two main phases to Kaler's investigation. One is pre-Bruno Hauptmann, and one is after Bruno Hauptmann is identified as their main su- suspect. Let's start with the, the pre-Hauptmann investigation. This is absolutely incredible. The, the amount of information that Arthur Kaler extracts from that ladder is, is just insane. And I'd love for you to go into full detail on how he does this and what he discovers. And, and take as much time as you need to, to explain this because it is absolutely fascinating. 
And, you know, Eric, before I do that, that was the biggest challenge, frankly, in writing this book is we have become accustomed as a society that crimes are solved in an hour on primetime television. You know, we watch CSI and we think, oh, yeah, you can solve this sophisticated crime with one little, you know, a dollop of, of something in a test tube. And all of a sudden you've got a crime that's solved. Um, so as a writer, the challenge was not to shortchange the detail that Arthur Kaler used while at the same point. Arthur Kaler was one of a kind. I mean, it, it was exhaustive and it was beyond detailed. I, I can't even I, I don't know that there is a word, a single word to describe what happened. So let me take you through that. This ladder, it's a telescopic ladder, which means it's basically a hybrid between a step ladder that's hinged in the middle and a full extension ladder, meaning it was either extendable or compressible in nature as its sections overlap. So the three sections of this ladder, in Kaler's view, were strangely narrow. Their width decreased from 14 inches at the bottom to 11 inches at the top. It made it so it could be nested together for transportation. It, it compressed pretty easily. Each section uh, was six feet, eight inches long. So together that reached a total of 18 feet with the overlapping parts. Now the ladder had not been jointed together carefully. All the maker had done was pretty much overlap the uprights and pin them with dowels and the support for the joist was inadequate, which actually was proved when sometime during the crime, the lower ends of the middle section uprights starting at the holes had actually started to split. So the ladder, um, as Arthur Kaler go, he, he inspects it for the first time in Trenton, New Jersey, at the New Jersey State Police headquarters. And he does so over a period of three to four days. So the ladder is taken apart. Every rung and every rail is numbered and measured, calipered for width and thickness, identified by species and scrutinized for every mark, be it man-made or machine-made in nature. So he's looking at things like tree rings, which in today's day and age, we all realize that if you see one ring in a tree, it roughly estimates to a year in the life of a tree. But back in 1933, this is still three to four years before the first ever research on tree ring science is done at the University of Arizona uh, by A.E. Douglas at the time. I mean, this is such pioneering effort. So th this is what he does. He ends up um, numbering the rungs, so the steps on the ladder as well as the rails. So there are 11 rungs. The bottom is number one. The top is number 11. And the ladder rails go from number 12 to number 617. So the bottom section of the ladder, the rail on the left is number 12. The rail on the right is number 13. The rail on the left in the middle section is number 14. The rail on the middle section on the right is number 15. The top rail on the left is the 16th rail. And then the rail on the right, top right, is the 17th rail. Numbers 1 through 10 those rungs, they were made of a softwood, a, a ponderosa pine, as a, a California white pine is what it used to be called. Number 11, Kaler deduced the topmost rung was of Douglas fir. The two rails, number 12 and 13, at the bottom of the ladder were North Carolina pine. The rails in the middle section um, were Douglas fir, which was grown largely in the Rocky Mountain West. Number 17, so up on the top right, that was also Douglas fir. Number 16, the the what we focus on and what I focus on in the book was different from the other five rails in some striking respects. Like number 12 and 13, it was North Carolina pine, but it was a more knotty kind of lumber than the others. And there were major differences to show that it hadn't come from the same tree. It hadn't been machine planed like the others. It had only been hand planed, in fact, on both edges. And the same hand planing marks were found on the 16th rail as were found on all of the rungs that were used in the, so the steps. So Kaler's deduction was that the rungs were planed at the same time that the 16th rail was. It also had four nail holes that were cut in it that had been made by square cut or eight penny nails, which had been made of iron. Now those nails were used since the early 19th century, but they were being phased out at the end of the 1800s as it became much cheaper to make wire nails from soft steel. But most of the nails still used in construction at that time, home construction particularly, were these square cutter eight penny nails that were made of iron. So those nail holes 
in particular, none of them showed any kind of discoloration or rust around the heads or around the nail holes, telling Kaler at the time pretty definitively, and this is what he tells the authorities, that the board had been nailed in a place that was sheltered from the weather. Specifically, he thought that it had come from a protected location inside a building, and he speculated at the time, maybe it came from the interior of a crude building, possibly an attic, shop, warehouse, or barn. It wasn't a finished piece of wood, so he didn't think that it was going to be in a living room or a bedroom or a dining room or a kitchen or anything along those lines or even a wall on the inside of a home that would be visible to the public. So you alluded to the pre-Bruno Hauptmann era. So this is what happens for Kaler's investigation. He ends up taking, in particular, rails 12 and 13, those North Carolina pine that had been machine planed. He measures the markings on them to the one one hundredth of an inch, and he sends out letters to basically lumber yards and mills all up and down the Atlantic seaboard in an effort to see, can he find a piece of lumber that has the same machine-made markings on it? Because he figures if he can find those same machine-made markings, then he can track back where that lumber was then sent to and who bought it. So he ends up, and everything was done here in secret, Eric. It's not as if, he was telling people he was working to help solve a crime, but he never mentioned the name Lindbergh, never mentioned specifically the case that he was working on. But at the Forest Products Laboratory, they set him up with a special lab. He ends up giving himself a middle initial, so all of the, which he never had in real life, but all of these wood samples are sent to Arthur G. Cole Kaler. And he knows the G indicates that's what this case, that, that's the, a sample that relates to this case. He ends up finding wood sent to him from a lumber yard in South Carolina, a, a lumber yard owned by a, a state senator there, there by the name of J.J. Dorn. And he ends up going and, and to this lumber mill. And he ends up finding the exact markings the exact markings on this. And it's stunning because, again, we're talking about measurements to the one one hundredth of an inch and a revolution of knives going at speeds that, I mean, if you've ever watched lumber being cut today, the process is not altogether (laughs) different than it was back in the 1930s. You're still using very sharp knives that are moving at extremely fast rates. And he ends up tracking. So he finds a piece of wood that has the same exact markings on it, ends up then finding their sales records that they had sent all up and down the Atlantic seaboard. And he tracks back a shipment to a lumber yard in the Bronx. And he gets there and he finds a piece of wood from that shipment that also exactly matches the wood that was used in the six, in the, in rails 12 and 13 in the ladder that was left at the Hopewell estate, the ladder that was used in the kidnapping of Charles A. Lindbergh Jr., only to find out that the sales managers there no longer took credit. They only took cash because you're in the middle of the Great Depression. So he hits this horrible dead end. I mean, the, the roller coaster ride that he was on when you read his journal and his letters to his wife are unbelievable because to, I, the, the detail associated with, I mean, this isn't even a needle in the haystack. This is a needle among needles in a haystack among haystacks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, and then he ran into a brick wall and it felt like he had let the authorities down. But but despite the setback, everything that he's been working on up until this point becomes important later to authorities. So while Kaler is is working on the ladder, there's a New York City detective named Finn busy tracking down the ransom money. Can you talk about how his investigation leads the police to Bruno Hauptmann? Sure. In in September of of 1934, Bruno Hauptmann pays for less than a dollar's worth of gas with a $10 bill. And the gas station attendant finds that to be rather odd and writes, I mean, you're in the middle of the Great Depression, not too many people were paying with $10 bills, and he wanted to make sure it wasn't counterfeit. So he ends up writing the individual's license plate number down. And that number then, that bill ends up getting turned into the bank. 
The bank spots that number on the ransom bills list. And this is two years, two and a half years after the ransom money had been paid. Um, they call the FBI. The FBI comes. They look at the bill. They see the license plate number. They go to talk to the gas station attendant. They run the license plate number. And they end up, it takes them back. The vehicle was owned by Bruno Houtman, who uh, was living in New York at the time. And he's ended up being arrested for the kidnapping and the murder of Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr. And when the police get into Houtman's garage, they find tools. Can you talk about Kaler's examination of these tools and how he's able to connect them to the latter? Yeah, not only do they find tools, right off the bat, they also find tens of thousands of dollars more in ransom money. And Houtman's excuse was there was an individual friend of his um, that had left uh, to go back to Germany who had asked him to take care of the money. But interestingly enough, they end up finding one of those hand planes. And I I don't want to kind of ruin the, the chronological order of this, but that hand plane comes to play an unbelievable role in the trial of Bruno Hauptmann, so much so that it seems like it's a scene straight out of Law and Order, a scene straight out of Perry Mason, what Arthur Kaler is able to do with this hand plane when he finally gets to this hand plane and is able to show a jury what it does and, and the markings that it creates. We will be right back. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with factors, scrumptious, ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com notorious50 and use code NOTORIOUS50 to get 50% off. That's code NOTORIOUS50 at factormeals.com slash NOTORIOUS50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor, and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before, and I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So your book is called The 16th Rail. So let's talk about The 16th Rail and how this rail becomes the most important piece of evidence in the trial. So basically, when the authorities arrest Hauptman and they turn his life upside down and they turn his house upside down, and as I mentioned, they find tens of thousands of dollars still of the ransom money, they don't have any real evidence that directly connects Bruno Hauptman with being in at the Hopewell estate that night and kidnapping this child. All they have is basically an extortion case. What Arthur Kaler's testimony does and what Arthur Kaler's research conclusively proves still to this day is that the kidnapping ladder and Bruno Hauptman are connected and directly connected. And this is what Arthur Kaler found. There was a missing piece of wood in the attic of Bruno Hauptman. So it had been pulled up from one of the boards in the attic. And when he explores this and studies this, what he ends up finding is that the connection, the rings, the lines of this piece of wood that's missing in the attic matches directly with the piece of wood that was produced in the kidnapping ladder, the 16th rail. As he said, there's no doubt that the board from the attic floor and the ladder rail were at one time one piece which was nailed down in the attic as part of the floor, and that part of it was cut off, removed, and used for the ladder rail. Now, I know there are probably a lot of people out there thinking there have been for decades. Why on earth would Bruno Hauptman have gone up and ripped out a piece of wood from his attic, brought it down to his garage to create a kidnapping ladder? No one's going to be able to answer that question, but 80 years after this testimony is presented in a court of law, even the science today still backs up Arthur Kaler's conclusion that this, as Arthur Kaler always was fond of saying, a tree never lies. And you can't fake or make a tree. Um, the evidence showed what the evidence showed. The 16th rail in the kidnapping ladder came from a board inside Bruno Hauptman's attic. It basically turned an extortion case into a murder case. So let's talk about the trial. Can you summarize the evidence that the prosecution had going into it? So the evidence they have primarily is they, they have ransom money. Um, they have a shaky eyewitness who says he saw Houtman's car driving toward uh, the Hopewell estate um, that night. They have evidence that, that he had been spending some money. They had evidence that he had quit his job. But again, it, it's you have to understand at the time, too, was it probably the most fair of trials? Uh, you know, in today's day and age, the defense counsel that Bruno Hauptman had would likely be disbarred for the lack of defense and the lack of fight that they end up putting up. Um, but without question, the jurors who are polled after the the case to a person will tell you that among the most convincing evidence they heard was that of the final prosecution witness, that being Arthur Kaler. He actually conclusively connected Bruno Hauptman with one of the three things that had been left at the kidnapping scene. So let's talk about that. You've already mentioned the hand plane and its significance. Can, can you go into a little bit more detail on that? Okay, so... It, this is just try and put yourself in a 1934 courtroom. And if anyone wants to understand, H.L. Mencken called this trial the greatest story since the resurrection. I mean, the world was watching this. There, there is uh, evidence that enough telegraph wire was strewn from the uh, Flemington, New Jersey courthouse to a nearby 
place for reporters to work that it literally blocked out large swaths of the sky. There were reporters from China, from Australia, from Europe, from Africa. The world came to follow this. And all you have to do is Google Lindbergh baby trial and look at images and you'll see the lines of people who were trying to get into this courtroom every single day. So in this, Arthur Kaler is there to testify and he is presented with this hand plane that had been taken from Bruno Hauptmann's garage, had been found by the authorities inside the garage. He literally attaches it to the judge's bench and then takes a piece of wood, just a, a, a piece of North Carolina pine, and he leans into it and he basically planes this piece of wood with the jury right there. He takes a little piece of wax paper, and I don't know if, if you were a kid, you ever kind of traced out on, on trace paper, say a coin, Sure. You know, the markings on a coin. That's what he does here with a blue pencil. And he traces the markings that the hand planer had made on this piece of North Carolina wood. Then he takes the 16th rail and he takes another piece of wax paper and his blue pencil. And he basically sketches out the markings there and he holds both up to the jury and they match identically. And to put this into perspective, just how good and how strong this testimony was after he was done. This is the, what the defense counsel said. The lead defense lawyer said, I have never heard more damaging testimony or seen a more enthralling demonstration than that presented in the courtroom today by Arthur Kaler. It led to him being called the Sherlock Holmes of his era. Uh, the New York Times said he testified in the role of a modern Sherlock Holmes. Damon Runyon wrote, the tale of scientific wood and tool detection told today by a bald-headed, mild-looking, middle-aged man from the woods of Wisconsin. An expert for the government of the U.S. named Arthur Kaler puts the greatest fictional exploits of Sherlock Holmes in the shade. It was, he ends up the next morning in 2,700 articles in hundreds of different newspapers around the world. Um, it was one of those great kind of law and order Perry Mason moments that I would imagine I'm just trying to put myself in that courtroom and the energy that must have been in there is this guy is sweating and trying to plane a piece of wood. And then with just a little simple wax paper and a pencil, he's able to prove that the 16th rail was planed by the same plane that was found in Bruno Hauptmann's garage. Does the defense have any defense at all? Any, any argument? Yeah, their argument before their argument was basically spent trying to stop Arthur Kaler from testifying in the first place. Um, basically, the, their argument was that there's no such thing as a wood expert. Um, as they said, there is no animal in this world known as a wood expert. It doesn't compare with ballistic experts and hand and fingerprint experts, those have been reduced to science. They're, they're well known and recognized by the courts. Uh, one of the assistant defense lawyers tells the judge the witness may testify as an experienced carpenter or something like that. But when he attempts to qualify and express his opinions as a wood expert, that's quite different. Um, and the prosecution, for whatever reason, wasn't necessarily expecting this challenge. And so they end up having to take a recess and their strategy when they come back. The, the New Jersey Attorney General asks Arthur Kaler to list his publications and the works that he had written. And so in front of the court, he starts reading uh, our national forests, how the taste of wood affects its use, how the odor of wood affects its use, what makes wood float, the burning of wood, how a tree grows, forest trees as sources of food, what wood is made of, a visual method of distinguishing longleaf pine, identification of oak woods, woods older than the hills, native woods as a passable substitute for boxwood, guidebook for the identification of woods used for ties and timbers. He goes on and on and on to the point where finally the judge interrupts him after he had listed 34 of his 52 titles and turns to the defense lawyer and says, do you still want to question this witness as to his expert qualifications? I mean, the judge basically smacked down the defense counsel right there and then. And after that, the defense didn't know what to do. And largely, they didn't know what to do because this science had never been seen before in a courtroom. So the verdict, as most of us know, is guilty for Bruno Hauptmann, and he awaits execution. In the meantime, the governor of New Jersey, a man by the name of Hoffman, decides that he thinks Hauptmann is being set up 
and decides to do his own investigation at the Hauptman home. So he brings all these people along, including Kaler. And in the attic, Kaler is confronted about his conclusions by Hoffman's experts. Can you talk about how that all played out? So this is a tiny attic in Bruno Hauptman's home. Everybody has to squeeze through a, a, an entranceway that's located inside of his closet. And everybody goes up into this attic. And you've got probably seven or eight people up there at the moment all trying to basically, the governor, as you mentioned, trying to, to prove that Hauptman was framed. They bring the 16th rail and they try to insert it back into the attic floor to see if it will fit. Will those nails, will the nail holes actually match? And they don't for a moment. And there's panic. There's panic on the part of the prosecution. There's panic on the part of Kaler. There's panic on the part of the detectives who are involved. They end up racing over to Columbia University, where they do have an independent scientist. Everybody, it's like a caravan that drives, you know, races through the streets of New York to Columbia, where they end up finding that the only reason that the nail holes are not matching up and are not going back into the joists in the attic of Houtman is because they had been plugged up. Because this had happened so many times, people had been inserting it and taking it out, that the shavings had plugged the holes. So in the end, Arthur Kaler's science holds up. And 80 years later, Arthur Kaler's science still holds up. Despite all of the conspiracy theories out there, despite all of the questions as to whether Houtman did this alone, Houtman didn't do it at all, whether you know th there were frame jobs, the real people are out there who did this. The one thing that really nobody questions is the fact that the 16th rail and the kidnapping ladder came from a board that was inside Bruno Hauptmann's attic. It's amazing when you think of all of the nitpicking and the parsing and the studying and the quizzing that has gone on surrounding this case. The greatest crime of the 20th century, maybe the greatest written about crime in history. This is the one part of it that nobody fights. So why was Governor Hoffman defending Bruno Hauptmann? He sincerely believed he had been railroaded. I, I mean, this... The story of Governor Hoffman is a fascinating one that somebody's probably going to do a biography of him at some point in time. He ends up having other legal issues later on down the line. Um, but he bought into this. And it's, you kind of need to understand at the time tensions with Germany were high at that moment. Was it, did Bruno Hellman get the fairest trial that he could have gotten? No, without question, no. In today's legal system, I, I think there'd be any number of challenges if you put that, all the scenarios that go into it. I mean, was there profiling? Was there stereotyping? Without question. Governor Hoffman sincerely believed in the conspiracy, sincerely believed that it would have been impossible for one individual to somehow climb up a ladder, steal a child, kill that child and keep the government and law enforcement at the highest levels of this country at bay for two and a half years. He just didn't think it was possible that one person could have done that. Arthur Kaler becomes pretty starstruck when he actually gets the chance to meet Charles Lindbergh. Can, can you talk about their exchange? So it's an exchange that, that he, I think anybody who met Charles Lindbergh at that point in time was starstruck. As we talked about earlier, there's no individual who's more famous in the world at that moment than Charles Lindbergh. So even the slightest acknowledgement that Lindbergh has of Kaler after his testimony is such that, that it's going to move a normally mild-mannered individual to a blushing, somewhat stuttering individual who simply can't uh, you know, fathom the fact that he's talking to an individual of Charles Lindbergh's stature. The, the idea that he could possibly have helped solve this crime, too, and bring some peace of mind to the world's most famous individual is one that when they encounter one another in the courtroom uh, is overwhelming to Arthur Kaler. How was Professor Kaler perceived by his peers in the public once the dust had settled down? He prepares his slideshow and he goes on identifying species of wood for the federal government for the next 20 plus years. Um, he goes back to his job. I, I, this truly is one of those 15 minutes situations where this was his moment um, and this was his expertise. And the two perfectly came together at this point in time. 
Uh, as a baseball fan, I always love sharing the story about how uh, the Chicago Cubs once sent Arthur Kaler uh, their lucky bat, which everybody on the team had used and then broke after a week's worth of games when they had been on a roll and hitting and they wanted to figure out what the exact species was to see if they could actually replicate the success they had had. And here we are 108 years later and Arthur Kaler didn't help them uh, all that much with that. Unfortunately, uh, as a Cubs fan, I say, but he goes back, he goes back to his normal job and he goes back to, to working every day in his lab and identifying wood species, um, for the government, for contractors, for private individuals for the next 20 years. Does J. Edgar Hoover ever call upon Kaler for his expertise again? He ends up being called to help with a kidnapping case in Pennsylvania not too long after that. Um, but but he's not able to help solve that crime, that, that crime. And it's not through any mistake of his. It's just that the evidence leads to a different direction and that the wood involved in that case doesn't lead to a, to a criminal. Um, there's never any evidence, frankly, that that Hoover and Kaler actually meet in person. And yet, interestingly enough, following this case, it's the FBI really in this country that starts to take the lead in bringing forensic science into crime fighting techniques. And you can't help but think the final prosecution witness, a pioneer in forensic botany, can't help but to move this country toward using science as it solves crimes. He lives a long life, doesn't he? He does. And he ends up. So after he leaves the government, he, he moves out to California. He ends up being a visiting professor at a number of different institutions from Yale to UCLA. He, he, uh, he consults on the Perry Mason show for a couple of episodes. And really all Arthur Kaler enjoyed in many ways was being outdoors. He loved the birds. He loved being among the trees. Uh, loved his family. Um, he's a first-generation German-American. He's, he's not a particularly vocal individual. He's not particularly verbal. He doesn't really um, share long stories. Um, but he was proud of this, and whenever anybody asked him, he, he had a slideshow that he was more than happy to deliver at Rotaries or Kiwanis Clubs, anybody who asked, or his church for that matter, anyone who asked Arthur Kaler to talk about what happened, um, he was more than happy to do so up until his death in 1967. Where can we send people who would like to buy your book? Anybody can can find this book on on any of the um, the booksellers online right now, or you can find more information out at my website, which is adamjschrager.com. That's Adam, the letter J, and Schrager is spelled S-C-H-R-A-G-E-R.com. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Eric. I've enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's episode of Most Notorious, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. And please don't forget to leave a rating or a review on iTunes for me when you have a moment to spare. Thank you, good day, and have a safe 